0: speed going on right now. That's all right. Grass is still going to get cut, okay? All this means it's going to be nice and even, all right? That's all that means. Um, But let's begin tonight by reading verse number one down through eight. This is the passage that your Bible probably has it as well as mine. It says Cain and Abel. Um, But I want you to know this is much more than the story or rather the account. I, I, I shouldn't say story. This is the account of Cain and Abel. This is much more of just talking about one brother and another brother or one brother that murders another brother, but rather this is pointing us to Jesus, We've got to understand, when we study the Old Testament, we've got to see that there is Christ under every rock, uh, in every shadow, that the Lord Jesus Christ is prophesied, and as well as proclaimed and preached in the Old Testament, the same way as He is in the New Testament, we, what we find is that you and I, because of God's grace and goodness, we have the entirety of Scripture given to us, preserved for us, and the gift of the Holy Spirit, God Himself, to give us Teaching, conviction, correction, and instruction in righteousness through the word of God, so that we might not just know what the Bible says, but even more so know who the Bible is about and know him in his fullness, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's begin tonight looking at verse number one. It tells us, And Adam knew his wife, excuse me, and Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of the flock and of the fat thereof, and the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect, and Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with his brother. And it came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. The story, the account here in chapter 4, starts off so wonderful. Adam knew his, uh, knew his wife Eve, they love one another, they're out of the garden, so things aren't great, or they're not, excuse me, things aren't as best as they could be because they're not in the garden anymore because of sin, but they're able to conceive, to bear this precious child, and they call him Cain, or rather she calls him Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. We talked about that last week, this idea of focusing in the fact that here she is believing that God has not just given her a child, but a son. Now, that was important. All right. This is not. There are some who take the Bible and say, well, God doesn't think that women are important. Well, that is baloney. God uses women to bring people into the world. It was God who used a woman, a virgin woman, to bring uh, His Son into the world, to die for our sins, to be raised again the third day according to the Scripture. The Lord uses women. However, what we do find in this is that God is tracing the lineage of these men, this lineage of faithful men, to bring us to Christ. But in the middle of this, remember that it is... The Lord who said to them, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Here, Eve is believing that God has given her not just a son, but the promise and the provision to fulfill what God had said would take place. And that would be that they would have a redeemer, someone who would crush the head of their enemy, Satan, the serpent who had deceived Eve. This is sort of a vindication for Eve, a A place of where now she's coming back full circle where she was once deceived by the serpent and then fell and then gave to her husband and then the husband falls and all of humanity falls within him. But in this, it's as if through the seed that the curse is reversed. And that's true. However, this would not be the one who would reverse the curse. Who is the one that would reverse the curse? Well, it's Christ. But in this, we see that she names him Cain that... I've been given this gift of a son to bring about redemption, to bring about salvation, to bring about the the prophecy of which God had said. But now here we get to verse number 2. And this is the birth of Abel here. So if you're following along in your book, this is the birth of Abel. It says, "...and she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground." Now the birth of Abel here, it says, "...and she again bare his brother Abel." There are some who look at the language of that and would say perhaps that these boys were twins. It's certainly plausible. We're not told. Uh, But nevertheless, if that were the case, well, it would line up for what would take place later on down the road with Jacob and Esau. Uh, But nevertheless, in this, what we do find is that whether some time passed or he was a twin, she bears a new son, a new son into this world, and his name is Abel. Now, The name Abel is identical in form with the Hebrew for vanity, or a mere breath. Quite the contrast from Cain, isn't it? Her response when her firstborn son Cain comes into the world is, I have been given a man from the Lord. God has providentially and graciously given me the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. We've been given a Redeemer. And she recognized this came from Jehovah, the Lord God, the Lord of salvation, the God of salvation. But instead, her second son comes in to the world. Calls him Abel. Which is the idea of this vain thing or even breath. Other translations or ideas of it is that of weakness. Perhaps because he was physically weak looking, a weakly looking boy perhaps. In this what we see is that her reaction is totally different. Now, let me ask you, dear mamas, right? Should there be a difference in the way in which you bring a child in the world? Where you go, oh, right, the first one, woo! Second one, eh, all right, you know, that's a nice one too. <laughs> Third one, eh, right? We're, I don't think that's the case. Why? Because every life is so precious. But Eve is looking at her new son in the wrong sort of lens. She was looking at her seed Not in the fact that it was truly this gift of God, every life as a gift of God, but rather in the sense of what can this child do for me? You see, her firstborn son, she believed, was going to be the one that could redeem her. Now she has a second one and goes, "Uh uh-oh, this might throw a a wrench into the monkey system here, right? Or a monkey wrench into the system, right? This is going to throw some things off is what it's going to do, right? It's going to be bad. This throws everything out of whack here. One commentator writes, but her joy was soon overcome by the discovery of the vanity of this earthly life. This is expressed in the name Abel, which was given to the second son. Uh, here in the parentheses, it gives you sort of the Hebrew, means in pause or nothingness, vanity, breath. It, whether it indicated generally a feeling of sorrow on account of his weakness or was a prophetic presentment of his untimely death. Either the case, it certainly would be something to note that his life would be vain in her eyes. But yet, nevertheless, who do we find in Hebrews 11, what we would call the hall of faith? Do we find Cain, or do we find Abel? We find Abel. And he's the one that's going to be murdered. But why do we find him, as we're going to see as we go in this passage? Because he lived by faith. His life would not be lived in vain. What we see here is that though his life Seemingly to the world meant vanity from what Eve is calling him, but the idea I believe that is so wonderful is this idea of breath. What we find the word breath is also used and translated the same word as spirit and wind. Now, what do we find that is called spirit, wind, or breath of God? The Holy Spirit. We find this in the very first portion of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1, verse number 2, and the earth was without form and void, and the darkness was upon the face of the The deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Now, that we see is a third person of the Trinity, but what is that word spirit there? It is the same word for breath or wind. What do we find in the New Testament for Holy Spirit? When the Spirit descends down in Acts chapter 2, what is that word? It is that same word for breath or wind. This could certainly indicate or illustrate that Abel is going to be one who is spirit filled and Spirit-living, right? Meaning everything that he does is going to be done for and by the Spirit of God. Meaning that he's going to be the spiritual one, the one who lives by faith. Who is a Spirit-filled person? Who's a Spirit-filled believer? Right? Someone who lives by faith. Someone who lives by faith and not by sight. Someone who lives by faith and not by the flesh. What will they be? They will naturally be filled by the Spirit because only the Spirit-filled person can do such a thing. The one who is fleshly will only live fleshly. The, only one who, the one who is fleshly or in their flesh, living through their flesh, by their flesh, for their flesh, will only live a carnal life. It will not have eternal lasting effects or eternal lasting meaning. But what is Abel's name associated with now? Well, according to Hebrews 11, one who is full of faith, one who lived by faith. What we see in their naming of Abel is that Eve has quickly gone from hopeful to hopeless with the arrival of her second son. Although there is great joy with the new life, there is much lamentation because of the sorrow and difficulties that await. Perhaps Eve looks at him and calls him Abel because he's a weakly or weak-looking child, and she goes, oh, he's never going to survive. He's not going to thrive in this harsh, sin-cursed world and environment. He's never going to be as strong as his brother or perhaps, you know, his brother's gonna be the redeemer, so there's no point in having him around anyways. the multitude of things could be going through her mind. What we see though is that just because a child one day might suffer or face things that are tough in life does not mean that their life is meaningless, worthless. But rather it should point us to the fact that like Abel, it should give us this idea of breath, that there should be a driving of the spirit, a driving to the spirit into spiritual things. By faith. Now let's look at Cain and Abel's paths here because verse 2 addresses that as well. It says, And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Now, did they come out this way? No, this takes some time here. Now, they're living hundreds of years at this point. So when is this point in time that we're talking of? Well, you want to know how old they were at this point? Me too, I don't know. Right? We, we're, we're unaware. The, the point of this is, that they are about to come of age, where they're going to have to make their decisions. What is the idea? They're going to be coming with offerings. You don't come with a personal offering unless you are of age, accountability, this idea and understanding that you are now coming to meet the Lord. And that's what we're going to get into here in the next few verses. But in this, this is an interesting note. First of all, um, Abel is mentioned first. Abel was a shepherd of sheep. JFB commentator writes literally a feeder of a flock, which in Oriental countries always includes goats as well as sheep. Abel, though the younger is mentioned first, probably on account for the preeminence of his religious character. Right? Isn't it interesting that it will be the younger and unexpected that will be used by faith of God throughout the Old Testament in pointing to Christ? We talked a little bit about this last week. Later on in the, in the book of Genesis, we're going to find several other brothers that are going to come about, and what do we find? It's going to be the younger ones, the ones who we would not think of, but that God says that's going to be the one. We've got Ishmael, the firstborn, but then Isaac comes. Which one receives the promise? Isaac does. Which one lived by faith? Isaac does. Isaac then has who? Jacob and Esau. Now, remember, we talked about this last week as well. We always say Jacob and Esau, but which one came first? Esau. He's the eldest. Then Jacob, matter of fact, talks about how Jacob comes out, we're holding on to him. Which one received the promise? Jacob. But Esau was this hunter, gatherer, strong, masculine man. And Jacob seemingly was this weak mama's boy. Lived in a tent and made soup. But, but, faith. One lived by what we see and that we're reminded of throughout all of Scripture is that God does not seek to use the one who seems to be the greatest, the mightiest, the strongest, the smartest, but uses the weak things of the world according to 1 Corinthians. Uses the abased things of the world to confound the wise and all these things. What He uses is those who simply humble themselves and trust God by faith. This is why, if you would look around tonight, look at yourself, and say, God can use me, and God can use you. Why? Because I'm not saying you guys aren't strong, mighty, smart, all those things. You are, every one of you, right? Every one of you. What I am saying is this, though. God has shown us clearly that you don't have to be this one who is head and shoulders above everybody. You don't have to be the wealthiest. You don't have to be the smartest in the room, the biggest in the room. You simply have to have faith, and that is what God uses. God uses those who trust in him. And now in this, it's going to be setting this up, this idea that the greatest to God and the greatest in the kingdom of God are those who have real humility and real faith. And you will never have real faith without real humility. And real faith always produces real humility. The Two will go hand in hand. But here we see that Abel here is a keeper of sheep. Cain, though, was a farmer. KMD commentator writes, Adam had no doubt already commenced both occupations, and the sons selected each a different department. God himself had pointed out both to Adam. The tilling of the ground by the employment assigned him in Eden, which had to be changed into agriculture after his expulsion, and the keeping of cattle and the clothing that he gave them in Genesis 3.21. Moreover, agriculture can never be entirely separated from the rearing of cattle. For a man not only requires food, but clothing which is procured directly from the hides and wool of tame animals. In addition to this, sheep do not thrive without human protection and care, and therefore were probably associated with man from the very first. Now this is interesting to note here. Abel, the youngest, is mentioned first in verse 2. The oldest, Cain, mentioned second. But it tells us what they did. Both had an option, both had a choice. Neither one chooses something that is either necessarily right or wrong in their occupation, right? You can be a mechanic to the glory of God as much as you can be a pastor to the glory of God, right? Let's not think here that it is an occupation that makes a man. And perhaps one of the gravest of dangers that we have with us mountain men up in this area and with men in general is that they often equate their whole sense of identity with what they do for a living. Anyone ever notice that? When men greet each other, they'll talk to each other, shake hands. And what's your name? Well, my name is Bob. My name is Bill, right? Well, nice to meet you, Bob. Nice to meet you, Bill, right? Then the very next question is, what do you do for a... That's right. You see, unfortunately in our society, what has become the measure of a man is how much he makes, what he does, and if he doesn't work with his hands and make lots of money or do something dangerous, then he's viewed as a little bit less of a man. Cain is no less of a man because he's a gardener or a farmer the same way that Abel is no more of a man because he shepherds sheep and goats. Rather, what we find is that the identity of every man and woman on planet Earth must never be in what they do, but their identity must be in who they are in Christ. Your identity must not be so dependent upon the outward world or your job, your occupation, the things that you've got, even your gifts and your talents. Who you are is not what you do. What you do should be based upon that All that I do is dependent upon who I am. So meaning whether I am a farmer or I am a shepherd or I'm a mechanic or a race car driver, everything that I do must be done through who I am in Christ. Now, in this, what we find is this interesting things. Cain is going to be the one who's disobedient. Abel is going to be the one who is obedient. Cain... Is going to follow along in the footsteps of his father Adam. Adam would be the gardener. Adam would be the one who certainly knew what it meant to toil and sweat, because that's exactly what God had told him he was going to have to do. If you remember back to the end of chapter uh, 3, verse number 18 Thorns also in thistles shall it bring before to thee, and thou shalt eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return to the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. God had made Adam, the first Adam, to dwell in Eden, the tabernacle of God, to know Him and enjoy Him forever. But Adam's disobedience caused him to no longer be able to walk up and to enjoy the fruit of the land of which God had given to her. Now he's going to be expelled from that beautiful garden, if you will, that is always luscious and plentiful with fruit. And now he's going to have to work on his own. He's going to have to toil with the sweat of his brow, with his own hands. He's going to have to get his hands dirty. He's going to have to start forming and fashioning things. He's going to have to drive away the crows, scare away the deer. He's going to have to pull the weeds and wait for the rain and pray for the rain. He's going to have to do all kinds of things, right? To, to make sure that he can eat, to provide for his family. But as well, Adam certainly would have learned what it means to take care of the animals. It was Adam at first in the garden who was the one who God brought the animals to that Adam then named. But Adam's disobedience, he had to then work in the ground, to produce from the ground, to eat from the ground. But obedient well, Abel follows in the footsteps of the second Adam. Who's the second Adam? According to 1 Corinthians 15, the Lord Jesus Christ comes a second and better Adam, a greater Adam. The one who came, and what was Christ? Well, he wasn't a, gar- a, a gardener, was he? Well, what was he? Well, he was a shepherd. He was one who was not just a shepherd, and not even a physical, literal shepherd of actual sheep and goats, but rather the good shepherd. The shepherd and bishop of our souls, according to Scripture. We find is that Jesus Christ, the faithful one, the obedient one, is the shepherd of His sheep. And He lays down His life for the sheep. In many ways, what is about to take place in the life of Abel is a beautiful picture and type of Christ. That He who would be innocent and faithful and obedient to the Lord and to what God required, would ultimately be slain by those who were angry, jealous, and self-righteous. What we find, though, is that Abel is remembered for faith. What we find is that Jesus Christ, the second and greater Adam, shows us that he is the good shepherd and takes care of his sheep. Who are his sheep? Jesus' sheep that he takes care of and shepherds are the ones who followed the way of Abel and not the way of Cain. What is the way of Abel? The way of faith. Now, as we look in this, Guzik writes, agriculture and the domestication of animals were practiced among the earliest humans. Adam and his descendants did not spend tens of thousands of years learning as hunter-gatherer cave dwellers. How many of you were taught in school or through movies, television, programs, that cavemen lived 10 to 15, 20,000 years ago? All right, a few of you. All right? and you were taught that they were really hairy and they were, and I don't mean to be funny, but... They were slunched over, right? They walked funny. They had odd-shaped heads. They used rocks for everything. They spoke like the Flintstones, right? And they yabba dabba and the whole thing. They didn't have a real language. All that stuff, right? Flintstones is the closest thing to a documentary as we can get now. No. Actually, you know what? what's so funny is that the Flintstones is actually a little bit more accurate than many things because mankind did live with uh, dinosaurs. How about that? We'll get into that later on. Nevertheless, what we see is this. There were those who would say that there were these sort of Neanderthals and through evolution and through thousands of years that they slowly but surely began from walking like this to walking upright and from going ooga-booga and being all hairy and having misshaped heads and living in caves to now that they're coming out of the caves and they're starting to make and create things with stones and rocks and they're starting to develop things. Do you know this? That in this same chapter of Genesis, you know what we're going to find? We're going to find people who are artists, those who are blacksmiths, those who are creating and making wonderful things for society. These were not people who walked around and picked bugs out of other people's heads. These were real, logical human beings made in the image and likeness of God. They were created to work, to uh, live for the Lord. They were created with abilities to do things that some sort of Neanderthal cannot do. Neanderthal and the idea of such is one that is born out of an evolutionary Marxist idea that man is just some sort of highly evolved animal, but at the end of the day, all he is is an animal. You are not an animal. We're not. And the issue is that society, because we have been so desensitized and so much told that we're animals, is that we're starting to act like animals. Is that we're starting to not care about life. We're starting to believe that it's okay to kill a a baby in the womb, or to kill an elderly person because they no longer contribute to society. Sadly, this is happening more and more. And it's happening in the United States, by the way. But they're using the term not killing off and not holocaust, but they're using the terms of euthanasia or assisted suicide. What we're finding is that this is a generation and a world that is so topsy-turvy because they genuinely believe that they are just another animal, and they're not. What we see is that these men had occupations. They were masters of crafts, but everyone in this day worked together, knew each other, and as well had to know how to do many things. They were much dependent upon the Lord, but as well much dependent upon their own hands and logic of which God had given them. The occupation of both boys is noted as it sets up what will happen in the next uh, what, what will happen next in the offerings that will be given in the following verses? The author here certainly points out that Abel is the one who's a keeper of his sheep. Cain was a tiller of the ground. Now let me ask you this, because it's not. And let's let's think here. In our own nation, we're only about eighty to hundred years removed, and that's not that far, believe it or not, in the grand scheme of things. Where if I had a garden, right, and you know, uh, Rick, he made, he made nails and, and metal works, right? Well, what would we do? We'd trade, wouldn't we? Right? I've got this, and you need this. You've got that, and I need that. Or we're going to do some bartering. Let me ask you, with a brother, do you think that one could go, you know, I'll give you some crop if I could have a sheep to offer to the Lord? What do you think should happen? Certainly there's going to be some bartering. Certainly there's going to be availability. And even it was only 80 to 100 years ago where everyone had their own farm. Everyone grew their own things, but everyone took care of one another and made sure that one another had what was needed for survival. Now we get into verses 3 and 4 and we see the two different offerings. One brings that which is not the fruit of His hands because He's a shepherd, but rather one brings that which is required of the Lord and the other one brings the fruit of His hands. And that is rejected by the Lord. There is nothing in our hands that we can bring to God that is worthy or able to give us salvation or to bring us in the presence of God. You can be the finest crafter, the finest gardener, the finest artist that there is, and you cannot get into the presence of God by your own works. Think about this. It was these parent, uh, the, the, these parents, kids, their parents, these young men, their parents, what happened to them? They sinned. And they immediately took their hands and immediately looked around and grabbed these fig leaves and sewed them up and covered themselves. And was it good enough to stay in the presence of God? No. As a matter of fact, they still then after covering themselves up said, this ain't good enough. We've got to hide behind a tree. And then when that wasn't good enough, what happened next? What did they make next? They made nothing next because they could make nothing else. It was then God who clothed them with the skins of an innocent animal. Now in this, it says here in verse number 3, and in the process of time it came to pass. Sorensen writes, the phrase process of time literally means end of days. Some have assumed as it is to be the end of the week or the Sabbath, perhaps a special Sabbath. In any event, both men felt restrained to make some sort of offering unto the Lord. It has further been assumed the place of the offering was before the gates of Eden, where evidently God still met with man. However, there is no specific scriptural evidence thereto. I believe, though, the Lord does not give us the chapter and verse to show us such. I believe that the logical understanding and the contextual understanding of these chapters as we read them together would show us that here what these boys are doing is a coming of age to go and meet with the Lord to worship God at the gate of the garden where the cherubim were and the flaming sword was to keep the way of the tree of life, meaning to keep man from entering back in and to eating of the tree of life, lest they stay in their sinful state forever without hope. Let's go back to chapter 3. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden cherubims, and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Now this is interesting here. Since the Garden of Eden, as we've talked about so much, acts as a type of the tabernacle or temple, and the gates of the garden guarded by covering cherubims pictures the mercy seat. Remember, that's what we talked about. What's above the the Ark of the Covenant there? What, What is there? The cherubim facing each other. What is there? What did that create? The mercy seat, where the blood each year on the Day of Atonement would be sprinkled to cover the sins of the people, to atone for the sins of the people for one more year. Now, let's pause here, and I'll get into the rest of that here in just a moment. If we were to look at the phrase, and in the process of time it came to pass, as end of days or a Sabbath day, certainly this is believed to be a certain time and place where these young men knew to come to gather to meet with the Lord. This is a set appointed time. This reminds us much of the Day of Atonement, doesn't it? The Day of Atonement happened the same day, same time, every single year. Year after year after year after year. Why? Because God ordained it to be so. And on that day, every step of that day, every moment of that day, had to be carried out as God had presented, as God had uh, described and, and ascribed for them to have, in order for them to have atonement for their sins. The Day of Atonement was the greatest, yet most solemn day in the nation's history, year after year, because it was only on that day that the sins for the nation were truly atoned for. The idea of atonement, and let's remember this, is the same word for covering. So where do we find the first atonement? In the garden, Genesis three twenty one. unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. So what do we find here? I believe it's certainly logical to look and to conclude that on this day that these boys are coming to make sacrifice is a picture of a couple of things. One, it's certainly a picture of coming to the tabernacle once more, specifically that to the mercy seat to worship God. That's where the place where God and man would meet, would fellowship together, where, where man could worship the Lord, But we also believe, and I believe in seeing this, in the way in which they come, where they go, how they approach, and in this end of days, if you will, or at this appointed time, as it says, in the process of time that came to pass, that this is certainly picturing the day of atonement. This is picturing the day for the covering of sins. On this day, these two young men have a choice. To either one come before the Lord as you see fit with all the works that you've got or to come before the Lord the only way in which you can and that is through the the shedding of innocent blood. There's a reason why we sing nothing in my hands I bring simply to thy cross I cling. Because we have nothing in our hands that we can make. Nothing in our hands that we can bring or give to God to be in right relationship with Him. Rather, the only thing that can atone or cover your sins is innocent blood, but that innocent blood has been shed and it was not yours and it was not an animal's. It was the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the Shepherd of God's people, as well as uh, the priest who made the offering, as well as the sacrifice. He is the prophet, priest, and king for His people. Furthermore in this, what we find is that this would have not only acted as a place of mercy seat, as it is logical to conclude that this would have been a place of memorial for their old life in Eden. Now The Old Testament is full of memorials, right? There's going to be times where they have certain places and altars and wells that are set up where, um, as we see the life of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the way down through and as we get into Exodus and all the way through, what do we find? The people of God who walked by faith set up altars of places of worship and remembrance where do you think they get such an idea from right here this has been passed on and passed on to meet with the lord and to remember where you met with god i believe that you and i ought to have some of those places in our life those places and those moments of times where you know this is the place where god got a hold of me and where i got a hold of god we should have those moments we should have those places In this, we also see that it is a place of sacrifice of worship. The place where Cain and Abel were taught the law of God from Adam and Eve who had directly been given it. Adam and Eve were not ignorant of the law. Eve was not ignorant of the law. Cain and Abel were not ignorant of the law. In fact, they're now born lawbreakers, naturally sinful in their flesh. And what we see though, is that Adam and Eve, if anybody knows what God expects, who do you think it would be? Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve knew that to obey God brings life and blessing. To disobey God brings separation. It brings death. For the wages of sin is death. What in the world do you think they would teach their children? Let me ask you this. What did you teach your children? You wanted to teach them the way of life the way of truth. He wanted to teach them what it meant to follow the Lord, what it meant to love God. In this, as we see this place once more of a tabernacle and a temple, they come to meet with God, to be in His presence. Phillips writes, they were well taught, those boys. They knew there was a God. They knew sin was an offense to Him. They knew he must be approached. It is likely they approached him at the gate of paradise where the cherubims were. They knew that when coming to God, they must bring an offering, for one does not barge into the presence of God. Man is not ignorant of God's law. He is only disobedient and suppressive of God's law. You can see Romans 1, 2, and 3 to see such. What is the purpose of man? What we're about to see is the purpose of man to know God, to worship God, to glorify God. As God reveals His glory, He should receive His glory. As He demonstrates His glory to us and shows us it, we should then direct glory and praise and honor to Him. The purpose of man is to know, worship, and glorify God. Specifically, though, we're told to worship God in spirit and in truth. Well, spirit, as as Jesus says it, is lowercase. As we've talked about this, this is to glorify God through spirit, soul, and body surrendered to Him. Just as the tabernacle and temple were a three-roomed place called the house of God, mankind being a three-roomed place called the temple of the Holy Ghost of God. We have our outward body. We have our inner man comprised of our soul, which is our Our thoughts, our uh, emotions, and our will, which is our decisions. This is really, truly who you are. Your soul is. Not your body, not your outward. And then the spirit. That is how you relate to God. That is the most critical. And what we see is that we are called in the New Testament to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Our spirit must line up with His spirit, which is called in 1 John the spirit of truth. So what do we see? We see that the purpose here, and that Cain and Abel know that their purpose is to worship God and they know God's requirements. Both of these boys know it. Why? Because these boys aren't wearing fig leaves anymore. What would they be wearing? They're not wearing blue jeans. They're not wearing a, a shirt and a tie. They're wearing the coats of skins of animals. How do we know? You say, Pastor Joe, it doesn't say it. Well, what just happened a few verses ago? God said if you want to be clothed and no longer naked and ashamed and fearful, it must be through the shedding of the, this blood of an innocent animal to cover your nakedness. And as well, that bloodshed to cover your spiritual nakedness, to atone for it, to cover for it. So I believe that on this Day of Atonement, if you will, as these boys come and approach the Lord, they are both wearing reminders of, of God's law, of the severity of sin, of their own shamefulness before God, and that they are coming knowing that they have got to offer by faith an innocent one to cover, to atone for their sins, that they might be in fellowship with God. Though man is no longer in the garden, man can still know and walk with God. How do I know? Because if you read just a chapter later, In chapter 5, we're going to see that there was a man called Enoch who walked with God, but he was not in the garden. Why did he walk with God? How did he walk with God? By faith. That's the key. Blood must be shed to cover sins and skins. Sins is the inner man. Skins is the outer man. The only way to have it atoned for, the only way to have it covered is through the shedding of innocent blood. We see that Cain and Abel would have been taught such from Adam and Eve who had been taught this bloody lesson from the Lord Himself in Genesis 3.21. One must be covered to enter the presence of God in worship. Now this is not just why we try to put on nice clothes when we come to church, but rather it's the idea that's the very reason why you wear clothes in the first place. Because there's a shame and a nakedness before being naked before others, but knowing that we are laid open and bare before the Lord through the Word of God that it pierces us from the inside out. Now we look here. They know the promise and provision of God. They know to trust in God's Word. They know to trust in God's work. And they've seen such in the life of their parents. But in verse number 4, it says, excuse me, in verse number 3, In the process of time it came to pass, Cain brought the fruit of the ground, an offering unto the Lord. This is Cain's offering here, first of all. Let me look here. You know what, guys, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna pull this to a close. I hate doing that. We're gonna pull it to a close because if I get started with Cain, I'm gonna wanna I wanna finish it, all right? And I and I wanna be fair to you guys. And so I hope you understand that. I wanna wrap this up by saying this though as we bring this to a close. In a process of time it came to pass. Cain's going to bring the fruit of the ground and offering to the Lord. And Abel, he also brought the first fruit of the flock and the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. When we come to church, whether it's a Wednesday night Bible study, Sunday morning for Sunday school and worship or Sunday night, whether you come for a prayer meeting or, or a men's meeting on Friday morning, whatever you come here for, I want you to know this. This is not the only place of which you come into God's presence. But certainly when we gather here, what is the purpose? To meet with God's people, With God. And there is a right way and a wrong way to do such. I firmly believe that perhaps one of the greatest issues in church today and beyond churches and pastors, but with every individual believer themselves, is that we think that we can worship God as we desire and that He will be happy with our own fruits and our own labor. He will not. We must worship God as he has required us. We don't do church and should never do church with what we thinks and how we feels. Right? How do we do church? What God says and what God says alone. So what we're going to see as we get into this next week is that we've got two people who both know what God expects what God deserves, what God requires, and they both know the benefits of obedience and faith in the Lord. Only one will choose the right way. There will be another who chooses the wrong way. And throughout the rest of the Scripture, what we find is that those who go the way of Cain will be going down this big, broad road that leads to death, destruction. Broad is the way. And many will go that way. But there will be another way that is set forth here in this same chapter. And that is the way of Abel. The way of faith. And it is a narrow way. And there are few that find such. But my prayer and my hope is that for us as a church and for every individual in this place tonight is that we would understand that when we come before the Lord is that we must do so as He requires, as He desires, as He has commanded, as He has instructed. we must understand who God is. Who we are. And that there is nothing that we can do to deserve God's presence and forgiveness, nor is there anything that we can produce to earn God's presence or forgiveness. But that it only comes through and by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. Well, who is Christ? Is He in this Old Testament? Absolutely. He is the fulfillment of God's Word and work, promise and provision. And I firmly believe that Abel comes trusting, not in the blood of a random animal from his flock, not even the fact that it's a firstling and the fat thereof, but he comes trusting in what God has promised and what God has provided. May we do the same. May we go the way of Abel. May we go the way of faith. Not just in our worship services, but in every part of our life. Every part of your life, in my life, must be lived by faith. Must be lived by faith to know God, to worship God, to glorify God. And then, and only then, can we truly enjoy Him as we were meant to do so. Amen? Let's stop here tonight, and we'll get into the offerings next week. Lord, we come to you this night. We're grateful for your goodness, your faithfulness. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we can gather, that we can study it. Lord, I thank you, Lord, that we've been able to take so much time and and concern with your word that you've provided for us, that you've taught us these things. Help us to not go the way of Cain, but rather to go the way of Abel, to go the way of faith. Help us to understand all these wonderful truths and, and pictures that you've given to us about what it means to follow you, to know you. And Lord, I pray that you would be the greatest desire upon every heart in this place, mine especially, and above all, Lord, that that I would have a desire to know you. And God, that in us pursuing you and knowing that you are pursuing us, that we would find fellowship with you. And as we find fellowship with you, we would find fellowship with one another at the foot of the cross, that we might be a people who know your power and know your presence in our life and our ministry, and that we would be a people who could proclaim the way of Abel, the way of faith, the way of truth, the way of life found in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for this time. Go with us now. Go before us, go with us and may we trust in you and be used of you mightily throughout this week. We ask all this in Jesus name. Amen. All right, you guys have a blessed night. We'll pick back.